We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. It's a pleasure to see you all this morning, particularly on a icy and snowy cold Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, glad to have you guys with us here at Emmaus. Uh, Please allow me to introduce myself to anyone I haven't had the privilege of meeting yet. Uh, My name is Adam Sanders. I'm one of the pastors here. And particularly if you're visiting with us today, it is a joy for us to have you. Thank you that uh, you've uh, made your way out into the weather to come and worship with us this morning. Uh, If you would, before you bolt out of here uh, to go find a nice warm place after service, we would love for you to stick around and uh, come meet us at our connect table. We'd like to uh, get to know you a little bit better, share with you uh, any questions you might have of us and, uh, and be able to meet you that way. Uh, Emmaus members say it every week uh, with the same amount of joy and gladness, but we are so thankful for you all, and uh, it's such a joy to be your pastors here at this church. Thank you for your faithfulness and in bearing the gospel together. Uh, hey, uh, before we get started, there's a couple of announcements uh, I want to make. First one, if you are uh, keep up with us on our social media posts, things like that, you might have seen that there's a sign-up for a women's spring Bible study that is open now. Highly encourage you to jump in on uh, that opportunity. We have uh, a great study that is looking at the arc of redemption through the entirety of Scripture, uh, kind of uh, taking that approach uh, to a biblical study. So but well worth your time to connect with other ladies in the church and uh, study the Scriptures together. Uh, the second thing I wanted to announce, um, many of you know uh, the Shelp family, um, John and Tim and, and Tim's wife, Kara, and... Uh, this week, uh, yesterday, they, they found out that uh, their sister uh, lost her battle with cancer. And uh, I just want to take the moment to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, highly encourage you all to reach out to them and, and bear this burden with them, show them the love of Christ in this, in this trying time for them. And uh, we, we want to take a moment, though, as a corporate body to pray for them as we get started this morning and, and lift them up before the Father of all comfort. So, um, so let's do that as we're planning to engage in this weighty task as we uh, open up the scripture to such a powerful passage. Um, let's go before the Lord together. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We lift high the name of Jesus and magnify him greatly, Lord. We pray that in this time that the words that we sing, the, the thoughts that we have, Lord, that um, Christ would be magnified in our midst. I pray that you would use your word today as it goes out to, to challenge us where we are, Lord, to encourage us where we're at, Lord, for the, to the saint in the room this morning. I pray that you would take this factual reality of our security in Christ, and Lord, that you would cement it in us, Lord, that we would believe it today and find all joy and comfort in Christ alone, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you take your word and, Lord, soften the heart of the wayward this morning. Would you bring them near, seeing just how good Christ is. Lord, I pray that you would be with our our brothers, Tim and John and, and, and Kara as well, Lord. I pray that you would be with the Shelp family, Lord. I, I praise God for them and the the joy it has been to walk with them in, in fellowship here at Emmaus, Lord. And Lord, our, our heart breaks for our brothers and sister. And I, I just pray that you would be with this family, that you would draw them near, Lord, that even now your spirit would comfort them in a way that 
words cannot, Lord, even as they seek for the words to cry out to you, Lord, that your spirit would provide a word of comfort to them. And Lord, I pray that you would use this body as your hands and feet to, to love them as you love them. And I pray that we would bear this burden of grief upon grief, Lord. We recognize that death is the ultimate enemy, Lord, then we pray that you, uh, Lord, we praise you that you have promised to swallow up death. And Lord, in the meantime, I pray that you would comfort your saints as we taste the sting of it and Lord, that you would give us joy in you. Even though that we are sorrowful, Lord, that we would always be rejoicing. Lord, be with us now as we open up your word. In your name I pray, amen. Well, in his classic fiction series, uh, Christian author and songwriter, Andrew Peterson tells for us a tale known as the Wingfeather Saga. Uh, within it, we see this once beautiful and thriving land has come into the powerful grip of a gruesome enemy force known as the Fangs of Dang, uh, under the merciless lead of their ruler, Nag the Nameless. In this story, we meet a delightful family who, like in all good stories, soon learns that they have a part to play in the vanquishing of this evil and seeing the restoration of the glorious kingdom of Aniria. And like all great stories, we see in this that uh, in spite of the terrible circumstances, all hope is never lost. In fact, throughout this course of this adventure, we're reminded that good will triumph over evil, but this never happens cheaply. In fact, what we learn in this is that suffering is not an occasion to succumb to the evil, or to give up on hope, but it is all the more reason to press in and fight, knowing that there's something out there worth living and dying for. As I was reading today's passage and studying it, there was a moment from this series that kept replaying in my mind. And I apologize, I'm going to be intentionally very vague in how I describe it, because it's a fantastic series. I highly recommend you jump in it. And, uh, in, the, in the world of hashtag spoiler warnings, I don't want to go there for you guys. So. But there's a moment in one of the books in which there's a battle raging around our heroes. And even though the, the conflict is pressing in on them, a moment occurs, and for the first time in the story, one of the characters realizes that Aniria must be real. There's actual hope that this place did exist and will one day exist and rule again, that good will triumph over evil. And even though he's in the midst of a battle, tears begin to run down his cheeks, and as others observe this, he speaks out and he says, you know, I've spent my entire life singing songs and telling stories about this place, but part of me always wondered, perhaps it was just too good to be true. And in that moment, there's a gracious word of comfort and rebuke from one of the other characters who turns to him and says, you mean the stories are too good not to be true. And friends, this is the posture that we have and see as we come to a place like Romans 8, 31 through 39, where we have been bombarded with the glorious truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been reminded of his power to save. We have been reminded that even our weakness is for our good because it occasions for us his help. And yet for part of us, I would imagine even in the room this morning, there's a belief that as amazing as these truths are, for me, I can't believe that this is true. When you think about the suffering in the world around you, and even the very sin that surrounds you and is so often with, is within you, there's a temptation to say that these truths are beautiful and glorious, but it's too good to be true. 
and Paul like a bolt of lightning in today's passage, in a word from the Lord and our comfort, rebukes us in that statement, says, these promises are too good not to be true. Only our glorious God could fathom and accomplish something so wonderful. And so we're going to see this today in our passage. In effect, Paul, in these verses, is doubling down on everything he said thus far. He's saying, in case you thought I was kidding, I'm not. And so, friends, we're going to see this as our passage moving forward. We're going to notice this reality that we are secure in Christ. The finished work of Christ is non-negotiable, irrefundable, firm, and finished to the end. So let's notice this together as we open up our passage today. We're going to see first, uh, in our first section, answering this question, if God is for us, who can be against us? In verses 31 through 34. So let's read that together. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? So friends, we see that Paul is coming off of, as we said a moment ago, unpacking these glorious realities that are ours in the gospel. For those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. The spirit of adoption has cried out, Abba, Father, we have been adopted into the triune God. Even in our moments of weakness, when we don't even know what to pray, the spirit is there praying on our behalf, drawing us near. And yet, friends, we see in light of these things, Paul asked the question, what else is left to say? What more emphasis can be placed on this reality? If God is for you, Who's going to be against us? Friends, this question is simple in its form and yet profound in its implication. In fact, the very fact that he assumes these things are true is boggling to the mind. For you see, the fact that God is for us should shock us. In fact, the book of Romans has explicitly laid this case before us. And I know for many of us in the room, perhaps we are tempted to view ourselves as almost maybe on a trial basis of the faith. You're walking along, but at any moment, the wrong step could prove that you were totally a fraud all along. That God's grace is not sufficient to cover the sins in your past, in your present. And yet what we see is that these sentiments are antithetical to the gospel. In fact, a few things uh, in Scripture, uh, we see this sentiment recounted over and over again. Few places do it better than the book of Romans. We've seen from the beginning in Romans 1 just the extent of our wickedness before a holy God. It was so much so that we even dared to say the things that God has called good, we dared to call those things evil. The things that we call evil are the things that God has called good. And we notice that the perfect law of God, His perfect righteous and holy standard, we are utterly incapable of keeping. And the craziest thing about it is we don't want to in our sin. And yet we see this is the glory of the gospel, is that in the midst of our weakness, at the height of our rebellion, it was when Christ came into the world. Friends, verse 32 puts an emphasis on this. I want to read it again. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For you see, friend, when we come to Christ with this belief that God is not for us, 
that perhaps this is all too good to be true. That maybe just maybe a moment will come when God changes his mind and cancels the deal. We're reminded in Romans 32 that Christ has already done the hardest part in your restoration. The harder thing has already been accomplished. There was an impossible chasm that existed between you and a holy God. The distance unfathomable of how the depths of how far you fell. And yet Christ Jesus came in the form of a man. And he lived the perfect life. And he died a sacrificial death. And in doing so, he laid his life down, paying for your sins on the cross. Friends, Christ has already accomplished the harder part. Why would we assume him then to change his mind on the easier promises to come? Why would he go back? Friends, the answer to this is clear and obviously he wouldn't and he won't. If you say today, Christian, your standing before God is not one of buyer's remorse. You were purchased at the highest price. And you are loved and secured accordingly. In light of this reality, Paul continues asking these questions. He says, if this means by which you are drawn near and made right, then who can nullify your standing before God? If this is the price that was paid for your redemption, what accusation or charge can reverse it? Let's notice this together in verses 33 through 34. It says, Who then shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Now this question before us is striking. If God is the one who justified you, if Christ and his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and intercessory work on our behalf has brought us peace, then who can reverse this? Who would dare to step into the courtroom in which God has declared righteous and bring evidence declaring unrighteous? Who would feign to come to a place where God has said, paid in full and said, debt still owed? Friends, there is nobody. We're reminded in places like Colossians 2, 14 and 15, where before the cosmic courtroom of the universe, Jesus Christ paid your debt in full to a holy God, making a spectacle of all the forces of evil that would stand to condemn you. And friends, in light of this reality, we must ask ourselves the question, who is it that would take what God has called righteous and declare that to be unrighteous? And, and hear me say this, not lightly. But when we give air to these beliefs that would suggest that anything could reverse the finished work of Christ or add to the finished work of Christ, we find ourselves in dark and sinister waters. Friends, the temptation stands all around us, and oftentimes it happens in very subtle ways. I want to briefly talk about two of those ways. Oftentimes the voice of condemnation comes from without the pharisaical charge to add to the finished work of Christ comes from every venue imaginable. And hear me when I say pharisaical. I'm not reserving that comment to the religious right, but this is a universal principle of pharisaism. In fact, we see from all angles attempts to add to the gospel, attempts to say, yes, Jesus, but also this, come from all sides and all peoples. 
So friends, whether you think that the modesty of your outfit earns and carries your favor with God or whether you think the cause that you've taken up in the public sphere is what justifies you, if you are adding to the finished work of Christ, you are undermining the very gospel itself. And friends, we also see this uh, perhaps in an even more sinister way. We do this when we question internally God's ability to save us. And hear me, I fear that so oftentimes this can be covered over as an almost pseudo form of humility. To question and say, well, I trust that these are true things, but there's no way it can apply to me. Look how, no one would know how wicked I am. Even God himself couldn't fathom how evil my heart is. Two things I'd like to say that. First off, the Bible makes it clear, uh, even likely in the darkest moment of your heart, in your height of self-condemnation, you probably may have esteemed yourself too highly. In light of God's holy standard, you probably even have mined the depths of just how wicked your heart truly is. And secondly, I would say, and more sinisterly, when we come to Christ and deny the effectiveness of his shed blood on our behalf. We are not elevating Christ's holiness and diminishing our holiness. We are actually diminishing Christ's ability to save and elevating ourselves. Friends, it's the opposite of John's cry in John 3.30. He must increase, I must decrease. It's in turn flipping that around and saying, I have increased and Christ has decreased in this relationship. May it never be the case. For you see... Whoops. <laughs> we are not the chief mover in this relationship. If God has called us holy, then who is to counter? The late R.C. Sproul said this in commenting on this verse. He said, It is just as futile for anyone to lay a charge against us as it is to lay a charge against Christ, because we are clothed in his righteousness. Once the supreme sovereign judge declares us righteous in his sight, all the slander in the world can make no impact on God's assured final judgment. Friends, whether this charge of condemnation comes from without or comes from within, if you are today here in Christ, that charge no sooner lands upon you as it would on Christ himself. It's as soon as someone could declare Christ to be unrighteous that if you are here today in him, they could declare you to be unrighteous. So Christian, walk in confidence in this. This is the glory of what Christ has done on our behalf. Just as we saw last week, the golden chain of redemption. Now for those who are called, we'll make it all the way till the end. Our salvation is sure in Christ today. Friends, notice again what it says in verse 34. Christ himself is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us on our behalf. Friends, I, I wish I had more time to, to delve into the the glory of this oft-overlooked and yet profoundly important doctrine of Christ's intercessory work. We've already got a good master class start into it with the last song we sang, right? Arise, my soul, arise. Seeing that Christ himself paid for our sins on the cross. And yet it is not as though that Christ has disappeared from the scene. It says, I'll show back up at the end of the age and then I will... Cancel and I will bring to account all records. No. We see that Christ is presently active in the work of salvation in the presence of the Father. 
Friends, I highly recommend you go, go back. We have sermons through Hebrews. Go to our Hebrews chapter 7 sermons. Go to John 17. You'll, you'll see a, a more in-depth, glorious depiction of this intercessory work. But for now, I, I encourage us to think and see this as Christ embracing his high priestly role. No longer are we relying upon the blood of bulls to be shed over and over and over again. And yet the once and for all work of Christ has been finished, paid for, and is being applied to the saints of God. Friends, Christ's past, present, and future is for your good and working out your salvation. So sure, nothing can take it away. And friends, so it is that we see that God is for us. He is for you if you are today here in Christ. The Father has set us apart and called us unto salvation. Christ has died, resurrected, and intercedes on our behalf. The Spirit seals us and prays the prayers we don't even know we need in this moment. Our triune God in perfect unity has willed your salvation. And what God has sought out to do will not be thwarted by any human hands. It is iron tight. And friends, for us, this seemingly seals the deal. Paul already asked the question, what then shall we say? Well, let's say a little bit more. (laughs) Let's notice he continues. He has proven emphatically that there is no voice of condemnation. Before God, our righteousness has been secured. And yet the question comes up in verses 35 through 39. But what about trial? What about life circumstances? Surely actions speak louder than words, right? You can tell me this, but if my life is littered with suffering and pain, surely this means that God has turned his back. Friends, let's see Paul's response to this in verse 35 through 37. We ask the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So we see Paul is turning our attention to broader circumstances. What about the events happening around us? What about the tragedies of life? Surely this is our proof that God has rejected us when we find ourselves in in unfair pastures. For as we see the language here used, it's powerful. Every possible imaginable scenario being caught under the wing. Tribulations, distresses, persecution of all kinds, famine, nakedness, danger, even capital punishment on display here. Friends, when we find ourselves encountering these things, is it the evidence that we need to know that Christ has rejected us? Emphatically, we see Paul answer in verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him. I want to take a moment to consider verse 37. What a powerful statement this is. This phrase, more than conquerors. In fact, another way to say that would almost be say, super conquerors. And if you're like me, a child who grew up in the 90s, you know if you put the word super in front of anything, it's untouchable. (laughs) Super Nintendo especially coming to mind with that. And yet, friends, what we see in this moment is that in Christ Jesus, through him and his power and strength and his applied work, then we are super conquerors. We are untouchable by the things of this world. Friends, this is where our confidence is found. And notice 
I fear there's a temptation to trivialize and even cheapen this verse. Get a tattoo on your bicep that says unconquerable. If you have that, I'm not, I'm not uh, cutting you down. But in this, we notice this unconquerability is not talking about this trite, trivial, superficial, life will go great for you, you'll get every promotion, you'll win every game. But this unconquerability is rooted in something. It's rooted in Christ, and it's rooted outside of circumstances. In fact, you might have noticed I jumped over verse 36. That was for a reason. It's kind of a bizarre verse when we look at it just at face value. It's almost like Paul has made a statement, then he tries to counter himself, then he makes another statement countering it. And yet what we see here is that in verse 36, Paul is actually magnifying what he's about to say in verse 37. I'm going to read that one more time. Verse 36, it says this, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Friends, in the context of this verse, Paul is quoting from Psalm 44, verse 22 specifically. And what we see in Psalm 44, as we read the entire context of this passage, uh, this is one of those psalms that's in the vein of, how long, O Lord, will the wicked survive and thrive? See, this is one of those psalms that was not written during the height of bell worship. It was not written during the height of idolatrous behavior, but this is actually a time in which the people of God are pursuing covenant faithfulness. There's no specific egregious covenantal breach that has caused the wrath of God to fall upon them. In a sense, what they're saying is, like us, like Paul, saying, God, we're your people. We long to be like you. Why are we suffering? This is the cry that's coming forward. And in this, Paul responds, none of these things are a rejection of Christ's love for you. In fact, in these things, we are more than conquerors. I'd like to take a moment. Um, I've had to whittle this list down about six times because I wanted to make it much longer. But I want to take a moment to look at a few brothers and sisters in Christ who have suffered well throughout history. You see, in this moment, Paul is not saying this to trivialize the suffering that we have experienced, but he's drawing our attention backwards for us to recognize that suffering does not negate the promises of God, but so often what we see is that suffering provides the crucible in which the godly rise victorious. Crucibles in which the godly learn to cling to Christ alone. So friends, I, I invite you to consider a few of these. There are certainly more I could add to the list, but uh, some of my personal favorites. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three young men we find in Daniel 3 who found themselves in the Babylonian Empire, secular culture to say the least. It might even make our culture look pretty, uh, pretty tame. And yet we find that these three men refuse to bow down to the pagan idols of the Babylonians. And in this moment, they're brought before the sovereign of not only Babylon, but really the entire world, the most powerful man in the world. And he says, bow down and walk out of here with your life. And what these three young men say is that, King, the Lord is able to deliver us and save us from this moment. But even if he doesn't, it's worth it to us to remain faithful to him. And what we see in this moment as these men are thrown into a fiery furnace to take their lives from them, we see God is magnified as not even a thread of their clothes is singed. And the very sovereign of the universe, this king, bows down before the Lord God Almighty and says, there is none on earth or in heaven like him. 
He alone is Lord of all. Friends, I invite you to consider the prophet Elijah, a man who was called to bear witness and testimony against the sins of the bell-worshipping Israelite people. And friends, he was the one who was labeled as the rubble rouser and the troublemaker. He was the one labeled as the troubler of Israel for refusing to bow the knee to Baal and, and calling for repentance to the Lord. And yet, friends, we see Elijah is vindicated as the Lord sustains him in the midst of famine and ultimately as he gives him victory over the worshipers of Baal. His name is vindicated as we see the Lord God is the one who has the goods. Friends, another person I, I, I love to consider, the woman with the bleeding disorder we see accounted in the Gospels, particularly Luke chapter 8, one of my favorite accountings of it. This is a woman, we don't even know her name, yet she spent 12 years of her life under the affliction of an illness that no doctor can treat. They've gladly taken her money and offered no service rendered in, uh, in return. And so she's poor, nameless, sick, and cursed by God in the eyes of all around her. And yet we see that in a moment she encounters Jesus, touches his garment, and Christ's ability to save is magnified amongst the Jewish people. A few more, like I said, I've had to cut this list. <laughs> Consider C.H. Spurgeon, one of my personal heroes in the faith. A man who suffered greatly physically and mentally under the burden of health and depression. And yet we see there are few tongues in the English language have offered more beautiful praise to Jesus Christ in all of history. A man who even at the very end of his life was despised and rejected by all of his friends who he had drawn near to for speaking out against worldly ideologies like Marxism and Darwinism. And yet we see Spurgeon's life vindicated in his, in his profound trust in Christ that no matter what circumstances surrounded him, that Christ was worthy. Perhaps few people have done more to advance the gospel around the world than, than the ministry of this man. Finally, last one. Uh, I invite you to consider Darlene Diebler Rose. A woman who, alongside of her husband, made the journey in the early 1900s to Papua New Guinea so that the gospel would be preached in a land in which it had not yet landed. And upon landing, everything that could go wrong did, from losing her husband to all of a sudden finding herself as a prisoner of war when World War II started and the Japanese came in and placed her into a prison camp. And yet we see a quiet faithfulness and trust in the Lord that even in the midst of those who were her persecutors, those who threatened her life and her physical safety, her proclamation and testimony of Jesus Christ led for many of them to place their faith in Christ Jesus. Friends, when we look upon the suffering of the saints throughout history, it in no way trivializes the suffering you're in now. I would never attempt to do that. I would never say, yes, that's bad, but, you know, come on, you're not Paul. Friends, what this does is it gives us an occasion to look and see that our suffering is not God forsaking us. Our suffering is not evidence that we've fallen away, but our suffering is the occasion by which God can take our pain and our brokenness and prove that He alone is sufficient before a world who needs Him the most. <laughs> Friends, this is the glory of our suffering. This is the glory of our super conquerors. Nothing can touch us, even in the midst of trials, even though it might take our bodies, take our health, Nothing can take Christ. And friends, this is the testimony we offer to the world. Paul concludes this passage, verse 38 through 39. Let's read these together. 
I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And notice Paul's utter confidence in this. This is not trivial or trite, but it is in a way as Paul saying, what else can we even say? Okay, let me continue this list. What else is there left to say? What spiritual being is there? What physical proximity? What creature? Even death itself, can these separate us from Christ's love? No, 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 they cannot. Friends, this is our confidence today that what God has set out to do, he will do. What God has promised, he will fulfill. And we can have confidence that he will be true and faithful to the end. He's already done the harder thing on our behalf and he will sustain us and give us all things in this life and the life to come so that we might remain with him forever. In light of these things, friends, I invite us to consider quickly three pastoral charges. The first one, similar to a charge we've been uttering over and over again, is that you are secure in Christ today. God is for you. Believe it. Christian, if you're here today, Feelings can be a powerful thing. Feelings are a wonderful gift of God. They allow us to experience the world in ways that are uh, unimaginable otherwise. And yet, friends, glory be to God that our feelings do not dictate the truth. If you're here today and you feel as though you have been rejected, cast aside, friends, the truth is that if you have clung to Christ by faith alone, through Him alone, then you're secure today, and nothing can take you from that. Friends, this is the ballast that we need in times of plenty and times of storm. We need the reminder that in all things, Christ is sufficient for all that we need. And friends, we have this glorious reminder today. So I beg you, as you walk out the door, do not just leave it in the cup holder next to you. Hold on to this truth, and may it carry you through life's trials. My next question, this question of who shall be against us, I would be remiss uh, if I didn't bring up the reality that although this question is, is fair and our response thus far is accurate, that in light of who God is and what he's done on our behalf, no one can challenge it. However, friends, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that many will try. This question, who can be against us, does not mean that people won't be against us. Christian, I give you the reminder in words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you when you are, others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, this is the utter guarantee we have. The more we look like Christ, the more worldly people will either be drawn to it or offended by it. This is the offense of the gospel. This is the very nature of it. And so, friends, I, I remind you today to stand firmly in that. Let that be all the more reason to trust in Christ and to proclaim him all the more boldly. And finally, for those of you today who are with us, if you are not in Christ, I beg for you today to put your trust in him alone. Cry out to Jesus today. It is through Christ Jesus that our hope in this life and the life to come is found. 
It is in Christ Jesus that our, our longings may be met and filled. It is in Christ Jesus that that guilt and shame of your sincere conscience will be resolved. It is in Christ alone that we come and cling. So I, I beg you, come and see him as glorious and worthy. Come and see him as the all-sufficient Savior that you need. Church, what else shall we say? What more can be said at this moment? If Christ is for us, who shall be against us? Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your name this morning. Lord, we thank you that we have a, a hope that is so secure that even in the darkest night, or even in a famine-tossed land, even at the edge of a sword, Lord, we have confidence that not even death itself will take us from your hands. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would embed within us this confidence, Lord, that we would not be shaken by the tides of our emotions or circumstances, Lord, but that we would have full confidence that you will do exactly what you've set out to do. Lord, may we cling to Christ alone. May this be our confidence as we move forward. Lord, be with us even now. Be with your saints as we walk out of this room. Give us a unshakable joy in you and hope in you, Lord. And Lord, draw those who are, are near. Lord, save those who are lost. In your name I pray, amen. Well, we conclude our time as we do every week here at Emmaus. And uh, I invite you, church, as you're coming forward in this moment to declare Christ crucified. I invite you to consider uh, what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. Take this as a moment to rejoice in Christ who... And, and God who spared not his own son and yet offered him up and has promised to give you graciously all things. Like, come in celebration of this church. Uh, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, uh, we're so thankful to have you here. Can I just say that I think if you are here on a snowy, icy day at 8 o'clock in the morning, then the Lord's doing something in your heart. So I invite you to press into that. Keep coming. Keep asking questions of, of brothers and sisters in Christ that you know. Uh, in this moment, I'd ask that you remain seated in your seat. This is a, uh, this is a meal, this is a practice that is for Christians. It will have no uh, effectiveness in saving you. This is a men and women of Christ who are coming to declare Christ crucified. So unless you have already declared that with your life, cried out to him, uh, then, it, then it means nothing to you. So rather we would ask instead that you do that, that you would cry out to Christ to save you, and that you would maybe talk to one of us, talk to one of these men, men and women as they come down and ask what that might look like. Uh, go ahead, come out uh, first row to your right. Come across, uh, take the hand sanitizer and the elements. Emmaus, our God is that good. Our salvation is that secure. Let's come and celebrate that together. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmaus KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Emmaus KC, please visit us online at www.emmauskc.com.